Amen. So I want, before we get into uh, uh, 10 misunderstandings of the gospel in the second hour, I just want to mention a couple of resources. I'm really, really looking forward to Saturday and Sunday, and I'm going to be trying to pack as much of our uh, series on Spirit of the Antichrist that we just did last fall. It's, it's uh, over 14 hours. I promise we won't spend 14 hours on it Saturday and Sunday, but 14 hours, 10 discs, 18 videos. Uh, and I'm going to try to kind of give you some highlights of this uh, during our two sessions Saturday and then two Sunday morning. And it's very important uh, stuff. I also want to mention that uh, currently we're going through a series on Wednesday nights. Uh, and we have uh, quite a huge uh, crowd that live streams it all over the country and then watches uh, the videos called What in the World is Going On? Which is more of an updated sort of right now in this crazy country of ours, the things that are happening. In fact, I just got a text I thought I would share uh, from one of my daughters uh, that I found rather humorous, and it, it goes right in line with what we're doing on Wednesday nights and what I'm talking about in Spirit of the Antichrist. She said, if the United States saw what the United States is doing in the United States, the United States would invade the United States to liberate the United States from the tyranny of the United States. So, uh, I don't think you can say it any better, Amen. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, I really want to make sure that you spread the word and come out Saturday night and Sunday morning. Um, again, the, the premise is spirit of the Antichrist, who the Bible tells us that spirit is already at work among us. And so what I did in that series is I took uh, seven, broadly speaking, characteristics of the future Antichrist who will rule the world in, in satanic tyranny after the rapture, and I said, these are some of the seven biggest characteristics of the Antichrist, and if his spirit's already at work among us today, do we see an increase or an uptick in those types of things happening? And if so, this clearly indicates we're probably getting near the end game of the Luciferian conspiracy to take over the world. And indeed we do, and, and I think you'll be uh, come to the same conclusion after I highlight even just a few of the things that we get into in the whole series. So I want to encourage you to, to pick that DVD set up if that interests you, and definitely come... Uh, this weekend for that. And then also, <clears throat> I want to encourage you to pick up one of our newsletter sign-up cards. It looks like this. Now, these look like our business cards as well. They're very similar. Feel free to pick up a business card too and stay in touch. I love to email and talk. But these are just have one line on it where you can put your email and then give that to me or Wendy and we'll make sure we add you to our email newsletter list. Uh, we send out emails anytime where we have new videos or podcasts or anytime I'm speaking or just occasional articles that I write and things like that. So it's a good way to stay in touch with our ministry. Uh, and again, we just need your email address to do that. So if you want to sign up for that, pick up one of those. I think they're on the far right of the resource tables uh, there. So uh, for this second hour, though, I want to continue to talk about our topic at hand uh, for tonight. Um, even though I'm looking forward to getting into some of the Spirit of the Antichrist stuff this weekend, right now I'm really eager to kind of elaborate on what we talked about in the first session. We talked about how important the clarity of the gospel is, how uh, we, we, we can know what we have to believe to be saved, and we've determined what that is. And now I want to get into uh, 10 false understandings uh, of the gospel. And uh, again, some of these you'll probably be saying a hearty amen to. Some of these you may never have thought about. And in all likelihood, there may be a couple that you have been guilty of, because I know I've been guilty of these through the years. So I really want us to be open and transparent about some of these uh, issues and uh, let the Holy Spirit kind of mold and shape us into a more clarified, accurate uh, view of what the gospel is, both in our own personal lives and also uh, if you do any teaching or sharing the gospel or Sunday school classes, whatever it may be. Uh, so what the gospel is not. The first thing I want to point out is that the gospel is not a commitment. The gospel is not a commitment. It's not about what we do for Christ or promise to do for Christ. It's about what he's done for us. And no amount of commitment on our part, no matter how earnest or how strong or how determined, can overcome the penalty of sin. We need Christ's payment on our behalf. Jesus paid it all, um, as we sung earlier uh, tonight. If we could earn heaven based on the strength of our commitment, then why did Christ have to go to the cross? 
That's the question. So I taught, as I think I mentioned, for 12 years full-time, both six years at a Bible college and then six years at a seminary. And when I was teaching at the Bible college, it was really a fun time in my life. Uh, we were a large school, 2,000 students, and we also were had a large contingent of non-traditional students. The average age was 40 in the program that I was teaching in. And a lot of these guys were pastors who were coming back to get their undergraduate degree. They, for one reason or another, never finished college, and they wanted to go on to seminary, so they had to get their college degree. So these were great uh, men and women um, that uh, were coming back to finish their degree. And um, a lot of the men were pastoring and wise and, and more experienced even than I was at the time. And uh, so they would be in the pulpits on Sunday, and then we'd have class, or my Monday classes, I would really enjoy uh, hearing the stories, because these guys would come to class, and they would ha all have updates on how their services went the previous day. And inevitably, one of the pastors would come up, and he would say, oh, uh, Prof, man, you would have loved our service yesterday. We had five people commit their lives to Christ. And I would always say the same thing. Man, that's fantastic. Did any of them get saved? <laughs> because you don't get saved by committing your life to Christ. First of all, you never find that language in the Bible. And second of all, just think about what the term means. A commitment is something we promise to do. It's something we pledge to do. It's, it's kind of a bilateral agreement. I commit to this, and in exchange, you give me this, right? But the reality is, as Scripture tells us again and again, salvation is not of works. In fact, in Ephesians 2.9 there, that phrase, not of works, in Greek is the same phrase that is found in Titus 3.5. It just happens to be translated in the New King James with the, pro, with the preposition by, but not of works and not by works. It's actually the same in Greek. And Titus 3.5 is actually the theme verse for our ministry, not by works ministries, which we've had since 1999. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We are justified freely by his grace. Freely. Now, freely is an interesting word, and I'm actually going to talk about this Monday when I have the opportunity to speak at uh, Alaska Bible College in, in chapel there. But we're justified freely by his grace. Now, we could get all technical about the Greek term free, but it's actually not that complicated of a word, and it does not have a lot of different meanings. Free means free, right? Uh, Revelation twenty-two seventeen says the same thing. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I always like to pause and really camp out there for a second because I've found in my experience that when I emphasize the freeness of our eternal salvation it often makes people uncomfortable. And I'm glad. I mean, I'm not glad that you're uncomfortable, but I, I'm glad that it's actually poking you somewhere that perhaps needs refinement. Because there is absolutely nothing wrong with the biblical notion that salvation is free. That's what grace means. If it's not free, it's not grace, Romans 4, Romans 11. If it's not grace, it's not free, right? So it's absolutely free. It's totally free. Jesus paid it all. That's what free means. Now, obviously, like any gift, it costs somebody something, right? But by nature, the recipient of the gift pays nothing for it, right? If you paid something for it, it wouldn't be free, right? So, for example, if I offered this DVD set to come up here, Micah, or at least just stand up so I can. Come on, stand up. <laughs> Man, I tower over you, brother. <laughs> but if I were to offer this gift to Micah, I'd like to give you this gift. And then right before, I would, now, that'll be $35. <laughs> <laughs> it just completely changes. You can sit down. Give you your free frisbee or something. I don't know what. Uh, but doesn't it, don't you see how it changes the entire nature of the transaction? Free means free. If there's any strings attached, it's not free. And if our eternal salvation is built upon something that we commit to, it's no longer a gift, right? Um. I remember when our oldest daughters were a little, I've told this story often, um, 
But uh, one time we gave them each a, a gift. I think it was $2 or something. Uh, they'd done something, uh, behaved or something. We said, hey, we want to bless you. So we gave them each $2 and said, we're going to take them to the dollar store and they can buy whatever they want. So we gave them this $2 and we, I took them to the dollar store and we were looking around and they kept pulling things off the shelf and coming, Daddy, this is what I'm going to get. And I, every time I'd say, oh, that's a piece of junk. It'll be broken before we get to the car. No, find something different. Find something different. And finally, one of my kids, my daughter, said, but Daddy, you said we could get whatever we want. And it just kind of struck me. You know what? <laughs> it was a gift. And if I'm going to control how they use the gift, it's not really a gift, right? And so... I said, I, I said, okay, fine. Whatever you pick next, you can get it. Just meet me at the register. And so they, they did. They got what they wanted, and it was broken before we got in the car. But anyway, at least they you know, saw an illustration of it. So the gospel is not a commitment. Um, you know, a commitment-based gospel is really prominent. That's why I listed it as first. We even call them commitment cards. I've been in churches where you, know, you have an altar call. They come down, and they fill out a commitment card. And they dated. And son, today's the day I made my commitment to Christ. And then what happens? Well, then they, a week, maybe a month, maybe a year, who knows? But somewhere down the line, their commitment wavers. They're struggling with sin, like all believers do. Uh, they're, wa they're walking in the flesh. And because their commitment wavers, their assurance wavers. And they begin to wonder, well, am I really saved? Am I really saved? On our uh, website, we have a... Uh, article that I wrote for a journal a number of years ago, and it was called in the journal Dan's Dilemma. I originally wrote it and called it um, The Devastating Consequences of a Commitment-Based Gospel. And it's actually a true story. I changed the name, but about a dear friend of mine uh, who was uh, plagued by this commitment-based approach to salvation and repeatedly doubted his salvation and kept getting saved every few years because he would struggle with sin and thought, well, I must never have been saved because I wasn't committed enough. So this time I'm going to really mean business. I'm going to really be committed. I'm going to really be strong in my commitment. But it's a vicious cycle that never ends. Right? So a commitment-based gospel basically begs the question, how committed do I have to be? If my eternal destiny is based upon my commitment, again, I'd like to know how committed I have to be. 90%, 80%, 100%, 110%, how committed do I have to be? There's really no possibility for assurance. And the idea that the gospel requires some kind of commitment really uh, stems from a failure to understand the fundamental difference between salvation and discipleship. And so I'm going to take a moment to... Uh, go through one of the first of many charts that I'll probably use throughout this conference. Uh, and by the way, our most popular charts, over 100 of them are available in the chart uh, book, either in digital form or print. But this is a key issue that every believer really needs to get their hand around. And that's the difference between our justification and what we often call sanctification. So justification is being declared righteous before a holy God so that our position is now righteous. We are positionally in Christ once for all. And when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ covering our sins. And we, we are justified or declared righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ that we get by faith. I know that's a lot of theological language, but it just means that we have been once for all forgiven of our sins and declared righteous by a holy God. On the other side, you've got sanctification, which is practical righteousness. And the reality is, uh, as once we get saved and are declared positionally righteous, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. He convicts us and leads and guides us and so forth. And we walk in the spirit, not after the flesh. We walk by faith, not by sight. We put on the new man, not the old man. And But at times in the Christian's life, we we give in to the, the temptations of the flesh and we don't always act and look like the positionally righteous person that we are. Now, we could prove this biblically and if we had more time and whatever, I'd take you to several passages that talk about how our 
practice in life should mimic our position in Christ. But I think it's, it's also equally easy to prove this anecdotally. And uh, I always like to do it this way. I ask people, how many of you would raise your hand today, right now, and say, I am a born-again Christian. I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. How many would say that? Good. Now, put your hands. Now, how many of you who are Christians ever sin? Raise your hand. Okay, Mark, you want to get their names? Or? No. No. So everybody who raised their hand admitted they've sinned. Everyone who didn't raise their hand sinned. So, um, so that's unanimous, no matter how you count it. It's unanimous. Um, so, but you see my point. We know, even as a child of God, a believer, that we sin. And when we sin, we're not acting like the positionally righteous person that we are. So that's positional righteous versus practically righteous. So positional righteousness rescues us from the penalty of sin. Practical righteousness rescues us from sin's power. The more we yield to the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit and more set apart we are, that's what sanctification means, being set apart to the image of Christ over, over a lifetime, um, then we're you know, less susceptible to sin's power. Positional righteousness occurs the moment we place our faith in Christ, the moment we believe the gospel, like we talked about in the first session. Practical sanctification occurs over points in time as we walk in the Spirit. We are saved by faith, and we are also living by faith. So the first category deals with salvation. The second one deals with discipleship. And the goal is for our practice. So the salvation and discipleship are not the same thing. Now, we're going to talk more about that in, in just a moment, but there are those who suggest if you're not a disciple, you're not going to heaven. Well, that's simply not true. Uh, there are two different things. You can be a disciple and not be a believer. Look at Judas. <laughs> he was called a disciple. He followed Christ for three and a half years. He's in hell today. But you can also be a believer and not be following Christ. Peter was clearly a believer. But he didn't always follow Christ, did he? In fact, he turned his back on Christ. So the goal is to be a believer, to be justified by faith, and to also be a disciple who's following Christ. So the goal is for our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ. That's essentially what the Christian life comes down to. Are you living like the person that you are in Christ, your identity in Christ, right? Are you reckoning yourselves dead to the old man and alive to Christ? And so Romans really is, is the quintessential treatment of this issue of the, the sin in the life of the believer. In chapters 6 through 8 of Romans, it's all about living like the new man that you are in Christ, right? So Romans chapters 1 through 3 is all about sin and how we're under the penalty of sin and everyone's a sinner Chapters 4 and 5, Christ died for our sins. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 6 through 8, now what? We're a believer, we're saved, we're born again, we've been rescued from the penalty of sin. But what does that look like day to day in our lives? And how do we walk in the Spirit? And remember Paul talks about in Romans 7, his life as a believer, how he continues to struggle with sin. He says, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I sometimes do them. The things that I really know I should do, I sometimes neglect. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And so our goal, and by the way, in that passage in Romans 6 through 8, Romans, which is a, you know, Paul's magnum opus and one of the great treatises in all of the Bible on justification, it might be interesting to note that the first command, in Greek it's an imperative, that's the mood, means it's a command. The first imperative that you come to in the entire book of Romans is not till chapter 6, verse 11, we're talking to believers. He says, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. In other words, act like the new person that you are. Stop putting on those old, tattered, dern, torn, dirty clothes that you wore when you were an unbeliever and live like a child of the king. Stop acting like a pauper. You know, It's the same thing we do in the temporal realm here with our families, like sometimes... You know, you might uh, uh, discipline one of your children. Like I might say to one of my kids, straighten up. Don't, no Hickson acts like that. Don't, act, you know, act like, act like a Hickson. Make us proud, right? That's not the way Hicksons act, right? 
And that's the way, that's really the essence of the sanctification process for the believer. It's not trying harder, doing more, checking off a bunch of stuff on a to-do list. It's recognizing who you are in Christ and living like it, right? And so that's really what it all comes down to is that our practice in life should reflect our position in Christ. But those who believe their eternal salvation, the left-hand column there, was built upon a commitment, well, then they're left with this endless cycle of guilt and shame and inability because you, there's only so many times you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and straighten up. <laughs> and they think it was because they straightened themselves up by committing and promising to be good that they got into heaven. And so when they're trying to live their Christian life and they realize, oops, I wasn't good, <laughs> they think, oh, maybe I'm not saved. So we need to see this distinction between discipleship and salvation. Now, in Scripture, there are three types of disciples uh, very quickly. Uh, and this comes from J. Dwight Pentecost, one of my professors at Dallas who's with the Lord now. But he points out that we see the curious disciples, which were unsaved people, such as Judas, who followed Christ. Disciple just means follower. Uh, but uh, never believe the gospel, right? But then you see the convinced, those are saved people, but they weren't really committed, uh, such as Peter when he denied Christ. So Peter's life was this ebb and flow of, of commitment, but he was a believer. Uh, and then the goal is to be committed. The goal is to be saved and committed. And this is any believer who faithfully follows Christ. So commitment is a discipleship issue, not a salvation issue. You with me? All right, that, that's the point. So the gospel is not a commitment, and we need to stop calling it a commitment. Okay. Secondly, the gospel is not a contract. So a lot of people have this mistaken notion that the gospel, and somehow they picture this in their head, involves sitting down at the bargaining table with God. So here you are, there's God, and you begin negotiating a deal. I deal with this in one of the chapters uh, in... Um, the top 10 reasons some people go to hell. And it's, it's a pretty interesting chapter because I use uh, uh, Donald Trump as an illustration in his famous book, The Art of the Deal. And, uh, but anyway, uh, so you're sitting down at the table with God and you say, okay, God, here's what I've got. God, I'm going to stop doing this. I'll never do that again. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to promise to do this. I'll try not to do that. And eventually, you put enough out on the table that God says, okay, you've got a deal. And he reaches out his hand and you shake on it. And that's the way most people view eternal salvation, as if it's some kind of bilateral contract. And many, many popular evangelical pastors, teachers, authors, radio hosts, etc., describe the gospel in terms that make it sound distinctly like some kind of bilateral contract. Now, they would never admit that, but, you know, just look at them in their own words and explain to me how that's not a bilateral contract. See, the reality is salvation is not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. It's one giver, one receiver. God's the giver. We're the receiver. It's not a negotiation. It's not a contract. Um, but I'm going to mention uh, MacArthur, and, and, and you tell me, if this is a unilateral gift or a bilateral contract. He says, salvation for sinners cost God his own son, and it cost God's son his life. And it'll cost you the same thing. Salvation, he goes on to say, comes from a life lived in obedience and service to Christ as revealed in the scripture. It's the fruit of our actions, not intentions. Now, I understand that, you know, MacArthur is such a prolific writer that I'm sure there are times he sometimes says things he wish he'd said differently. I feel the same way. I've only written nine books. But there's no wiggle room here. This isn't just a misworded statement. In fact, this statement, it was from his book, Hard to Believe. Uh, that's the name of the book. Uh, it caused such a ruckus that in the second printing and beyond, they took it out. So if you were to go buy this book today, it's not in there. But it was from page 93 of the first edition. I mean, just think about it. Salvation costs God his son, it costs God's son his life, and it costs you the same thing. You're, it's a bilateral thing. You're each bringing something of equal value to the table. And as long as you do that, then you're in. But no, it's like we sung, nothing 
in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So we come empty-handed to the cross. One scholar, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, actually likens eternal salvation to a marriage covenant. And just as a husband and wife make a bilateral covenant before God and these witnesses, we need to do the same thing if we're going to go to heaven. And he even gives some suggested vows, such as, this is his words, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful disciple. As long as you make your end of the contract, then he's got, you've got a deal. You're in. John Stott said, At simplest, Christ's call was for personal allegiance. He invited them to learn from him, obey his words, and to identify themselves with his cause. This is in the context of the quote. He's talking about eternal salvation, how to become born again and go to heaven when you die. All right. So I get into this issue of the bilateral contact extensively in what is Calvinism and is it biblical? Because this is the essence of Calvinism. Uh, and uh, this is a very uh, well-documented, I quote Calvinists in their own words hundreds of times, I'm very fair and irenic and, and gracious to them. I, I am not personally attacking. Uh, I've spent a lot of time at Calvinist conferences. I've spoken at Ligonier. I've spoken at Desiring God. I've been to T4G. Uh, I, I interact with them a lot and I respect them. I just think they're wrong, and they're wrong on a pretty important issue. Um, they love Jesus. They love his word. They just are not accurate when it comes to the clarity of uh, the gospel. They think it requires some kind of contract. It reminds me of what the rich young ruler said to Jesus in Matthew 19. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? In other words, what's my part in the deal? What do I have to bring to the table? And... Um, you know the rest of the story. Jesus quoted some of the key commandments. The guy goes, oh, well, I've done all that for all my life, from my youth, which is just a metaphor for uh, all my life. Jesus says, oh, really? You think you're perfect? Let me mention a couple other, or at least one other law. How do you measure up on the laws about benevolence and helping the poor? Why don't you go sell your goods and give them to the poor? Oh, he went away convicted. I don't think I can do that. So Jesus was obviously not suggesting there that you've got to give to the poor to get to heaven. He's indicting the man like Jesus often did in his rhetoric of asking questions for his the fact that he's not righteous. He is lacking. And as James the Lord's brother would later say after the resurrection, if we keep the whole law but stumble in just one point, we're guilty of all. And that was Jesus' point. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and reminding them that salvation is not a quid pro quo. It's not a bilateral contract. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is fascinating to me, although a lot of ink has been spilt over trying to interpret and apply the Sermon on the Mount, and it's, there's all thousands of different views. I think it's pretty simple, really. Uh, Jesus, right out of the chute, the first major sermon, at least that Matthew records in his earthly ministry, although we think it probably happened about a year into his earthly ministry, but from Matthew's narrative, it's making a theological point. And he's basically saying, look, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get in, which in their day, they were considered the epitome of righteousness. Now, they lorded it over the other people in Judaism, and they were, people were kind of frustrated with their arrogance. But in terms of the religious system, they looked up to them as, man, they've got it all together. They've dotted their I's and crossed their T's. You know, they had the huge phylacteries. They put the big money in the clanging plates. And they said the long, loud prayers like trumpets. And so Jesus says, you know, on the hillside that day, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And you can almost hear the gasps, but you could also almost see Jesus looking out of the corner of his eye at the Pharisees standing off, listening to him like this. And I believe, and I think we can prove it from Matthew 7, that the, I mean, at the end of Matthew 7, that the Pharisees were there because Matthew tells us kind of the narrative at the end that they were angry with what he said or didn't like what he was saying. So, you know, you could almost hear the gasps and then, unless... 
lest anybody listening to the sound of his voice that day thought that Jesus was actually giving a, an actual quid pro quo contractual arrangement and think to themselves, wow, I just, I don't, I can't imagine being better than the Pharisees, but if that's what it takes, I guess I'll give it the gold, good old college try and I'll just have to try harder and do more and dig deeper. Jesus clarified later on, and actually it's before this in the context, he says, but really your righteousness has to be perfect. It's not just about being better than the Pharisees. See, entering heaven isn't like an SAT score where you, as long as you're in the 99th percentile, you're good, right? You know, the standard for entering heaven is perfection. So a lot of times people will say, and I've had people say this at funerals and stuff as they're just nervously talking about mortality and whoever their beloved person has died, they'll say, you know, oh, so-and-so, they sure weren't perfect, but they were better than most. Or someone might say, well, I, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most, right? And uh, the problem is the, the, the problem is in the statement, <laughs> I'm not perfect. So you've got to be perfect. It's like, it's like people somehow think the standard for heaven is Mother Teresa and the standard for hell is Hitler. And as long as I'm, you know, I may not be Mother Teresa, but as long as I'm close to that, I'm okay. I'm in the 98, 98.5 percentile. And I may, I may have made some mistakes, but I'm no Hitler, right? <laughs> the problem is neither one of them are the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ, and he's perfect, sinless. And so you have to be perfect. And so Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount here, you know, these people, they're saying, Lord, Lord, we've done all these things. We've done all these good wonders in your name. And what's he going to say? I never knew you. I mean, I think there's going to be a bunch of 99 percenters in hell. There are a lot of moral people that have never been declared righteous by faith. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone. It's not our morality and our behavior that gets us into heaven. As I said, Jesus said, you've got to be, you've got to be perfect. So salvation is not a contract. Um, it is, uh, as Augustus Toplady said in that great old hymn, Rock of Angels, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So uh, the, the gospel is also not giving something to the Lord. You know, this is where people really, as Charles Ryrie said, turn the gospel 180 degrees in the wrong direction. I remember hearing him speak at a conference one time that I was actually leading, and he made that point. He said, you know, when people talk about, I gave my heart to the Lord, or I gave my life to the Lord, or I gave myself to the Lord, they've tur turned the gospel 180 degrees in the wrong direction. There's one giver, one receiver, right? And... You know, the Bible is pretty clear in John 3, 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That he's God's the giver. We're the receiver. John 1, 12 says, as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become the children of God. Right? So one giver, one receiver. And here's the problem. I think people are coming to the altar or coming to this moment where they emotionally feel convicted and feel like they need something to be redeemed from the penalty of sin. And so they're bringing all this stuff, arms loaded, to the altar. And Christ has got eternal life and forgiveness of sins ready to give them, but there's no place to give it because their arms are full. And people need to stop bringing everything to Christ, somehow thinking that's going to merit them some type of uh, honor in his eyes, and just leave it all behind. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply the cross cycling. You've got to be empty-handed. You've got to come realizing there's nothing you can do. You see that again and again in Jesus' earthly ministry as the gospel writers have this juxtaposition between the self-righteous, pious Jews who, as we read in Luke 15, thought they had no need of repentance. They, they didn't think they needed to change their mind about who Christ is. They had all their I's dotted and their T's crossed versus the dirty, rotten, filthy, lowly, you know, tax collectors and harlots and dregs of society who come in simple childlike faith saying, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. So salvation is not giving something to the Lord, it's receiving something from him. Number four, salvation is, or the gospel is not repenting of your sins. Now we could spend hours on this, I've got a whole chapter and an appendix and getting the gospel wrong on it. I've get, got sections in my Calvinism series on DVDs about this. But here's the, here's the short 
treatment of this issue. The biblical term repentance means a change of mind. It's a compound word, meta, naeo in Greek. Naeo means I think. Uh, so, or metanoia is the noun. So it means literally meta again, naeo, I think. So it's to think again or to change your mind, to rethink something. So we know that's the meaning of the word. As all words, context has to determine the precise meaning in, in each situation. But for example, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we're told multiple times that God repented. God metanoeo, right? God repented. God never sinned, so clearly repentance cannot have some type of inherent connection to sin. We see this again and again in the New Testament where people just change their mind. Now, the Bible nowhere ever says you've got to change your mind about sin in order to be saved. It just doesn't say that. In fact, uh, I, in the appendix, I show that there's only 58 total usages of the noun and the verb, if you combine them, total, either noun or verb combined, 58 times in the entire New Testament, versus you know, 240 usages of the word believe. So somehow along the way, we've conflated believe and repent so that, you know, you look at doctrinal statements and it makes salvation into a two-step process. Believe and repent, or repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. Um, but repentance just means a change of mind. Uh, in, in the broadest sense, when you were trusting in something else, your own good works, your own efforts, your own baptism, if you had, you know, your own religion, whatever you were trusting in to get you to heaven, but then you became convicted that only Christ could save you, so you changed your mind and trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who could save you, and were born again in that instant. You could describe that entire process as repentance, a change of mind. But nowhere does the Bible ever say you've got to turn from your sin to be saved. And yet that's the way you often see it pictured in gospel tracts and illustrations and preachers and so forth. We'll talk about doing a U-turn. It's like until you do a U-turn, you can't get saved. All a U-turn does is change your direction. It doesn't change your heart, right? We don't get to heaven because we've stopped sinning. If a person could get to heaven by stopping their sin, then why did Christ have to die? So, repentance of sins doesn't save you, and the Bible never says that it saves you. Repentance of sins, everybody ought to repent of sin. Uh, and by the way, I, often because of the clarity of the gospel, people will mischaracterize something I say and will act like, well, he, he doesn't think sin's a big deal or you know, he thinks it's okay to sin. I want to go on record right now, and I guess this is being recorded, right? I am against sin, okay? <laughs> if you're sinning, stop it. It's never a good idea. It only leads to great unpleasantness. It has serious consequences. Ultimately, sin is a killer, and sin doesn't care if you're a believer or not a believer. Sin kills. If you're a believer and you just keep on sinning, you're going to die and go to heaven sooner than you should, Proverbs tells us. <laughs> if you're an unbeliever and you keep on sinning, you may die and go to hell, which is tragic. Sin kills. James says sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Right? John says there's sin that leads to death. Proverbs again and again says that. So sin, bad. Everybody with me? <laughs> Don't do it. And, uh, and, and, and everybody ought to do that U-turn, okay? But that's not what gets you into heaven, all right? If you've got two people standing up here that are both struggling with meth, all right? And we've got some experience with that uh, in our broad connections. And I know how devastating it can be. But let's say for the sake of the illustration that person A over here is a believer, Person B over here is an unbeliever. Is the believer who's struggling with meth somehow immune to the death-dealing consequences of sin? No. Sin's a killer, right? And uh, so it's a bad idea. And that's part of the discipleship process for believers is to walk in the Spirit so they don't yield to the flesh. And the more we walk in the Spirit, the less likely we are to sin. Ultimately, someday we'll meet the Lord in the air if he comes back in our lifetime or if we die and we're a believer we'll go to meet the Lord at death uh, and then we won't ever have to deal with sin anymore as long as we're topside this earth constrained to this old body of flesh we're going to deal with sin 
But nobody gets into heaven because they turned from their sins. It just doesn't, I mean, it's a good idea, um, but it's not what saves you. What saves you? Faith. 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 240 times. We've got an appendix at the back of um, getting the gospel wrong that uh, shows every occurrence of the word faith uh, as it relates to eternal salvation, right? So repentance of sin, the gospel is not repentance of sins. Uh, secondly, or next, fifth, the gospel is not surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. Once again, this is an example of confusing discipleship and salvation. Eternal salvation, as we've seen, is a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ, God's Son and our Savior. Salvation is not an agreement based upon my allegiance or reverence for God. It's not like God's waiting up there for us to be respectful enough, allegiant enough, subservient enough, surrendering enough until he finally reluctantly agrees to get us into heaven. We don't get eternal life based upon our allegiance. Eternal life's a free gift. And yet this false gospel of surrender is very, very prevalent. Consider uh, these quotes from a leading evangelical pastor of our, our day. These are all, and I get, quote these in the book in their full context. Uh, eternal salvation requires placing oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just talk about that one for a second. What does that even look like? If that's the standard, how can I know when I have totally submitted myself to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'd like to know, wouldn't you? If that's the standard for making sure I go to heaven, show me. Because I'm not sure I can really quantify that. Can you? But I can quantify what I believe. As Paul said, I know whom I have believed. I know I've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. I'm not so sure if I'm fully submitted to the Lord all the time. Right? He goes on to say that uh, it involves willful obedience and turning from sin. Hmm. Well, and this may come as a shock to, to, to some of you, although you don't know me that well, but you probably believe the best in me. After all, Pastor Mark wouldn't have some sinner come speak in your pulpit. But I'm not sure I'm always willfully obedient to the Lord. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm sometimes willfully disobedient. Full transparency, right? We are a Cowboys fan. Well, I am what? A Cowboys fan? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've got some godly qualities too. Thank you for pointing that out. You must have the gift of encouragement. So... Uh, but we all know that, right? So if that's the standard, how do, I, how do I measure up? Or yielding to Christ's authority. Am I always yielding to Christ's authority? Always? Well, then it becomes a question of degree. How much? And then you're right back into this grading on the curve concept. Well, I'm 90% yielding. I mean, I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm not going to stand up here and act holier than that. I, I sometimes don't yield to Christ's authority, but I yield enough to somehow impress a holy God, and so he's going to say, come on in, you're in the 90% club. But this particular pastor says, no, you've got to yield to Christ's authority if you want to get to heaven. Or eternal salvation requires a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. Look, when I was six years old and I placed my faith in Christ, I'm not even sure I understood what all unrighteousness was. There were some unrighteous things I didn't even know existed. <laughs> let's be honest so how can I purposefully decide to forsake them so I was six years old I, uh, my testimony I grew up in a Baptist church at the time we lived in West Virginia we were attending a garb church and uh, pastor preached the gospel every week um, and Sunday morning and Sunday night and, uh, and so uh, one particular Sunday night and of course my parents had talked about the gospel and so forth. But one particular Sunday night, the Spirit of God got a hold of me, and that night, uh, as I was laying in the top bunk of my bed, we still have those bunk beds, by the way, we've used them for our kids, um, and my dad happened to be the one that came around that night to tuck us in and say our bedtime prayers. It was usually my mom and occasionally my dad, it happened to be my dad that night. And I don't remember exactly what, my said, what I said, but perhaps my dad could tell you, but it was something along the lines of, Dad, I don't want to go to hell. Because I had become convicted of my sin as a young boy, and the preacher had made it clear that sin is punishable by eternity in hell. 
And so my dad reiterated for me the simple gospel message that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead and that if I would trust in him, he would forgive my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. And that's when I marked the moment of my eternal salvation. I passed from death to life in that instant. All right? I didn't understand how I needed to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. I, I, I just knew that I was a sinner that needed a savior. And all of these things that you see on the screen here deal with discipleship. I mean, think about it. Every one of us, as a believer, should wake up every day and say, Lord, I want to be totally submitted to you today. Today, Lord, I want to, I want to willfully follow you. Today, Lord, I'm going to yield to your authority in the power of the Spirit. Today, Lord, I'm going, to, I'm going to purposefully decide to forsake unrighteousness and I'm going to pursue righteousness. I'm going to, I'm going to walk in the Spirit and, and produce the fruit of the Spirit. That, that's, a, that's what every believer should do. But that's not how we get to heaven. If it is, we're all in, in, in a lot of trouble. right? So, you know, how much do you have to, to, to know as a, as a child or as anyone to be saved? It's real simple. You need to know you're a sinner who needs a savior. And uh, I, I talk about the five core essentials in getting the gospel wrong, but you don't, there's no magic number about five. The gospel is the, the gospel. I just kind of broke it up in a way that I feel like it helps clarify. But, you know, some people really struggle with this notion that salvation is, is about, you know, what they call fire insurance, right? And they don't like that. It goes back to the, the, the diagram I showed you in the first our uh, what the gospel has become in this postmodern age it used to be about being rescued from the penalty of sin which is eternity in a literal place of torment called hell but now it's become about how to have a good friendship in Christ and so forth and so on and so people don't like it when in fact I've even you know heard people from pulpits and conference platforms chide the notion that well he just he just got he just made his commitment to Christ to avoid hell and I'm going, well, first of all, it's not a commitment. But second of all, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much, I mean, salvation, I mean, salvation means being rescued. Christ didn't go to the cross to keep you from having a lonely, depressed, unfulfilled life. Christ didn't die on the cross so you could find purpose in this life. Do believers have a biblical worldview and a better purpose in life? Of course. Yeah, that's one of the many benefits that comes from being a child of the king. But is that why Jesus died on the cross? Absolutely not. He died on the cross so that nobody in this room has to burn in hell for all of eternity. And by the way, a lot of times people say, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? God sends nobody to hell. <laughs> See, God actually did everything he possibly could to keep us from going to hell. He created us in his image, and part of that meant we have free will. If God hadn't given us free will, then what's the point? We're all just a bunch of robots, right? But God gave us free will. And he said, look, the whole garden is yours, but there's this one tree that's very dangerous, and I love you so much that I want to protect you from that. So take my advice don't eat from that tree, because in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Die. Now, a lot of people miss that. They, they think that somehow it was like God dangling a carrot or God being a killjoy. No, God was lovingly like a father saying, don't touch the hot stove. It'll hurt, and it'll do a lot more than hurt. And so God, right from the start, loved us so much he was protecting us. But what did we do? We marched right over and took a great big bite. Uh, and, and so then, in that moment, I mean, think about this. this. This is the kind of stuff I think about. And I know I know this will resonate. In that moment, we just took a big bite of the one thing that God warned us against. God could have, in that moment, said, ah, oh, just kidding, no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. That hell thing, just kidding about that. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And if that had been the way God responded, in that moment, he would have proven himself to be a fickle, unfaithful, lying, untrustworthy God. How could we ever believe anything he says? So I don't know about you, but I'm glad that when we ate the apple, 
we brought the penalty of hell upon us. But God didn't stop there, even though he would have been fully justified to do so. He then took the extra measure of helping us get out of the predicament that we got ourselves into, which was sending his eternal sinless son to earth to put on human flesh. And then as we talked about in the first hour, walk down the Via Dolorosa up a hill called Calvary and take his sins upon his shoulders so that you and I uh, don't have to. So the wrath of God was satisfied. The penalty has been paid. All we have to do is receive it. Now, God doesn't force his love on anybody. He doesn't force us to be saved. Contrary to what Calvinists say, they, they say you don't have a choice. You're either in or you're out, right? And uh, you have no choice in that. You can't reject the gospel if you wanted to, if you're elect. And if you're not elect, you couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to. You have no part in the matter. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that whosoever will may come. So he's made it possible for anyone to receive the payment made on their behalf. But if you don't cash the check, it's not in your account, right? So the offer is a universal offer. Whosoever will may come. And if we receive that gift, then it gets transferred to our account. And we're now a child of God, positionally righteous like we talked about. And, and uh, we're in. So, you know, God is an amazing God. And he's not a liar. And he's not fickle. He warned us, and then he rescued us. And what did he rescue us from? Hell. That's what we're saved means. He didn't save us from a depressing life. I mean, our life on this earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. People become so consumed with this life and think that somehow we're bad because we're making salvation all about heaven and hell. That's because that's what the Bible makes it about. It's, you're saved from hell. I mean... Sorry. So it is fire insurance. And, you know, once you're saved, then it goes way beyond that. We've got a job to do. We're here for a reason and a purpose. And as long as God has us on this earth, we ought to be shining as, as, as stars in this perverse universe, as the Apostle Paul says. We ought to be a light on a hill. We ought to be sharing the gospel. We ought to be drawing others to him by our good testimony. But at that moment of conversion, it is literally a matter of heaven and hell. So... Uh, you know, the gospel is not surrendering to Jesus. It's about receiving, you know, from Jesus eternal life. And so then the next one, number six, is the gospel is not inviting or asking Jesus into your heart. Uh, now, this one's a, a, a bit of a struggle because especially in our Baptist heritage, it's, it's what we've often used. But I studied this extensively and found that the, the terminology invite or ask Jesus into your heart, is not found anywhere in the literature of church history until about the turn of the 20th century. And it was really born out of a Baptist concept. And I'm sure originally it was just a sort of a metaphor for explaining faith, and people that originally started using that terminology understood and probably even explained in their giving of the gospel that you've got to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. But it, it very quickly turned into this formulaic concept wherein you know, you've got the well-intentioned you know, third grade Sunday school teacher sharing with her students the gospel and reminding them that they're sinners who need a savior and that Christ Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead and then saying, now would any of you like to be saved? And five little hands go up and she says, great, then repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, come into my heart. Amen. And five little children say, Dear Jesus, come into my heart, amen, and walk out of the room thinking they're saved. And they don't know anything about what it means to trust or believe, which are synonyms, in Jesus Christ. So it's just not helpful language. The Bible never uses that language anywhere. Uh, it, it also is guilty of confusing the result of our salvation with the means of our salvation, right? So... The result of placing your faith in Jesus Christ is, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.17, that Christ will dwell in our hearts. But how does he get there? By faith. <laughs> Not because we asked him. You can ask Jesus all day, come into my heart. And the Bible is pretty clear that unless you've placed your faith in him, again, 240 times, uh, he's not going to uh, come in. Um, so it confuses the result of salvation, which is Christ takes up residence in our heart with the means of 
salvation. Nowhere does the scripture ever indicate that we gain eternal life by inviting or asking Jesus to come into our heart. And it really is confusing. Um, you know, when a child hears that, they really don't understand what does this mean, right? What does it mean to have Jesus in my heart? And, and it can really be paralyzing because they, they understand heaven and hell and they understand the penalty for sin and they don't want it, but you've not given them anything they can understand. And uh, that's the reason, you know, salvation is so simple for children or should be anyway, at least in Scripture. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Why? Because they know what trust is. They know what faith is. I mean, think about it. Little kids, they trust God for everything in life. Their food, their clothing, their shelter, everything. Everything they have is based on trust. The older we get, the more self-sufficient we become. That's why study after study shows that people who haven't gotten saved by the age of 21 are far less likely to ever trust Christ. But young, tender-hearted children, they say, oh, to, to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life, all I have to do is trust this guy named Jesus, the Son of God, who died for my sins and rose from the dead. Sure, I'll trust in him. To them, it's not that complicated. To an adult who's gotten you know, years of bad theology, bad teaching, Satan blinding men's hearts to the gospel, let's not forget who's behind it all, then they, they just think it's much harder, you know. And it's not hard. It's a matter of simple trust. The gospel similarly is not saying a prayer or praying a prayer. Uh, we call this the sinner's prayer. And again, the problem with this, besides the fact that it's got no biblical precedent, is that it makes people think that, you know, the prayer is what saves them. And we often end up in the, the, the sinner's prayer saying things like, Lord, I ask you, Lord, I invite you, or Lord, I promise to do this, or Lord, I commit to do that. As we've talked about, none of those are requirements either. So it, it's not that prayer as an expression of faith is wrong. You know, in essence, you know, faith is, is every step of faith is, is a prayer because you're trusting in God and you're communicating that to him, even if it's non-verbally. So it's not that there's anything wrong with prayer. It's the formulaic notion of a sinner's prayer where if you say this prayer, you're in. And, you know, I often believe that people mark the moment of their uh, conversion with prayer. But I believe when we get to heaven, we're all going to find out whatever that moment is. We probably actually passed from death to life moments earlier or possibly even some time earlier. Like, take my example. I remember very vividly that night on the upper bunk of my bunk beds where I, my dad clarified the gospel a little bit and I trusted Christ. But it's quite possible that several weeks earlier during a sermon that the pastor was giving, it clicked. I heard the gospel and I believed the gospel. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I think we may all be surprised when we get to heaven that the moment in our minds when we sort of mark the moment, might have actually happened before that. Uh, so you don't get saved by saying the sinner's prayer. Uh, you don't get saved by forsaking your old ways. This is similar to the issue of repentance of sin and this notion of a U-turn. Uh, but again, the Bible is clear that if it's by grace, it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Or in Romans 4, he says, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, the very thing that some people think they've got to do more of to measure up is actually widening the gap. The more you work for your salvation, the more indebted you become. But the minute you say, I'm going to stop working and receive it freely by his grace, then you're saved. And uh, number nine, the gospel is not a public profession. Gospel is not a public profession. Uh, this comes from a misunderstanding of Romans 10. We don't have time to break this down verse by verse, but I do have a DVD that do, does the whole Romans chapter 10 called Accounted as Righteous, but let me just summarize it for you as succinctly as I can. In Romans 10, Paul's talking about Israel like he is in chapters 9 through 11. And he's reminding Israel that uh, someday they're going to be delivered into their kingdom nationally as promised. It was an unconditional promise and they're going to get their kingdom. Chapter 11 ends with the, the, the deliverer, Jesus Christ, coming back and delivering them into Zion nationally. But he says before they can be delivered nationally, 
they've got a call on the Lord. This is very clear in the Old Testament passages. We see it again and again in Joel 2, for example, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, talking about national Israel, they will be delivered into the kingdom. We see it in Jesus' statement uh, in Matthew 23, right before the Olivet Discourse, when he explains to the Israels after you know, he said all those wonderfully kind words about them, like you know, vipers and you know, hypocrites and snakes. You know, sometimes we forget the 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 you know, we've, we've created a kinder and gentler Jesus than sometimes the Bible presents. But uh, after those wonderful words that he said to them, he then said, you know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not listen. So you will not see me again until what? You cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, that messianic psalm. And so when Christ came at his first advent, uh, that Passion Week, just a couple days earlier from this scathing rebuke that he gave the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, there was a splattering of people that cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But very quickly, those cries became, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And so he said the next, and they crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. But when he comes back, they will cry out in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Paul understood that, and that's why he quotes Joel 2, and he says, you will not receive national deliverance until you first call on the name of the Lord, because, and, and you can't call on the name of the Lord until you believe in him individually. So individual righteousness comes by faith, as it is throughout the book of Romans and indeed throughout the Bible. And so Paul says, how can they, Israel, plural, call on him in whom they have not believed? So with the heart individual man believes and is declared righteous. And then with the mouth, the nation of Israel will confess and call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom. And that's the way it's going to happen. So public, and, and the only reason I spent so much time there on Romans 10 is just because that's the verse that people use that we have to confess with our mouth in order to get to heaven. Uh, and I've heard evangelists uh, really butcher this passage and they'll say things like, you know, Jesus went to the cross for you. If you're not willing to slip out of that pew and walk down this aisle and publicly confess him, you can't get to heaven. You know, as if somehow that's what it takes. No, uh, you don't have to publicly profess faith. Um, you should. That's what we do as a, our daily lives. should be a living sacrifice, Romans 12. Um, but that's not a requirement. If so, mute people couldn't be saved, for one thing. Uh, so, uh, I mean, seriously, let's, let's be honest. You have to think about these things. So, no, public profession is not a requirement, um, and, it's, and that's not what Romans 10 is saying. It's simply by uh, faith. And then finally, the gospel is not inclusive. And I uh, talked about this at the very beginning tonight, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, so, in that moment when you place your faith in Jesus, if in your mind it's a buffet line like Luby's, and you're thinking, well, I could believe in Allah or Muhammad or Buddha or I could, but I'll choose Jesus, then you're not really believing in Jesus because it's faith alone in Christ alone. It's trusting in him as the only way to save you. It's abandoning your faith in anything and everything else you used to think would save you and instead trusting solely in Jesus Christ, the one who took your penalty on the cross. So the gospel is not inclusive. Inclusivism teaches that, you know, anybody can get to heaven on the basis of Christ's death as long as they have faith in something. It doesn't really matter uh, what that is, but Jesus did not teach that. So uh, just to review, the gospel is not a commitment. It's not a contract. It's not something that you give to the, it's not giving something to the Lord, I should say. It's not repenting of your sins or surrendering to Jesus as Lord. It's not inviting him into your heart or praying a prayer or forsaking your old ways or publicly professing him. It's not inclusive, it's exclusive, faith alone in Christ alone. So what is it? Well, the gospel is good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again to pay my personal penalty for sins and that he is the only one who can give me the free gift of eternal life. And if you believe this, then... You're saved. End of story. So again, if you want to study this in more detail, a couple of books uh, over there on the resource table, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. That's the latest book. Uh, I'm really, really excited about that. And then Getting the Gospel Wrong. As Mark said, it's a, a remind me not to hire you as my publicist, by the way, because it is, it is pretty deep, as Mark said. It's a, it's a 
a lot of footnotes and theology, um, but uh, it really breaks it down for you. And then Freely by His Grace is over there. The Gospel Unplugged is over there. And then the DVD series I mentioned earlier, What is Calvinism? And is it biblical? So thank you guys. I know we uh, kind of covered a lot of ground and pretty quickly, but uh, hope you'll come back Thursday or I mean Saturday for Spirit of the Antichrist. We're going to be really touching on some pretty heavy stuff. And if I haven't made any enemies yet, I promise you, I will make some enemies <laughs> on Saturday or Sunday. But uh, be kind, be kind. We're going to talk about a lot of heavy stuff. So. Any closing word? Are we going to sing or are we just going to close out? Awesome. And then uh, if people have questions, you'll be around? Yeah, we're going to stick around. And uh, I, I, I meant to try to allow some Q&A, but I, I just took up the whole time. Sorry about that. And there's but, still food. And, no, there's no food. Oh, there is still food. Yeah, so feel free to grab some food. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for... Again, for this time, thank you for these great brothers and sisters. Thank you for the common bond that we have in your Holy Spirit. Thank you for Pastor Mark and Angie and their family. And uh, just uh, the privilege of, it is of sharing this pulpit and talking about your wonderful matchless grace. Lord, we ask your blessings now uh, as we depart. And Lord, pray that you would really prepare the way this weekend as we talk about uh, what's going on in this world and how that relates to your plan of the ages. So we give you this uh, evening now and thank you again for this time in Jesus precious name we pray amen